Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand that had an impact on you? Probably Disney. Disney, yeah. Yeah, in a huge way. I mean, I was... Still get a tingle when I kind of think about the early trips to Disney. And but they were also the masters of experience, you know. And you know, what is it? What is it that compels me to kind of keep my e-ticket booklets and literally everything, you know, including the viewfinder things that I had. And so yeah, I think they uh did a great job of turning me into an advocate and really developing a very deep emotional connection and obviously getting me to spend a lot of money. Hi, I'm Jim Stangle, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Pete Blackshaw, the CEO of Centrifuge, which is a venture fund and a force for collaborative innovation. Before becoming CEO of Centrifuge, Pete began his career at P&G. Then he founded a company called Planet Feedback, which eventually was acquired by Nielsen. Pete worked at Nielsen for a few years and then went to Nestle in Switzerland as the global head of digital marketing and social media. He's a fast-talking, fast-thinking kind of guy. We talk about the future of advertising. We talk about trust. We talk about where it's all going. And he has insights and advice for everyone in marketing, no matter what your job is. Here is my conversation with Pete Blackshaw. Pete, welcome to the CMO Podcast. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me. So we have a lot in common, right? We both worked at P&G, Procter & Gamble. You partner with me in Cannes to help train and develop the CMOs of the future. We both live in Cincinnati, which we'll get into a little bit, and we're both tennis players. And finally, we both have an interest in startups and big companies. I was so interested in it, I wrote a book about it, and you do it every day. But first and foremost, we're going to start with, you are a banana slug. Yes. So explain that to our (laughs) listeners. I'm not only a banana slug, I actually started one of my first businesses selling banana slug t-shirts. So I went to UC Santa Cruz. Um, fantastic school uh, south of San Francisco. Um, the iconoclastic mascot was the banana slug. And while we were trying to make the the, the banana slug official, credentialed by the university, I kind of came up with the design. I co-developed with a, a fellow student, and uh, we kind of co-opted the university 
uh, logo and it said Fiat Slug, which meant let, let there be slug. Um, and so Very I, inspiring. No, and I literally sold like 100,000 t-shirts, but what really gave it uh, worldwide uh, notoriety is that it was featured in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction um, while I was in business school. Wow. And so, and I got word that a Hollywood producer wanted to put it in the film. I said, no problem. I didn't realize that it was Pulp Fiction until uh, I was in my, yeah, my, my first year of business school. I thought I was, uh, you know, going to flunk out and uh, I was getting all these media inquiries. So I ended up creating a website called SlugWeb to make all of the uh, publicity available. I should have called it Amazon, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, but we yeah, make small mistakes. But again, Santa Cruz was um, a great kind of liberal arts school, really uh, taught me a lot about challenging authority. I was quite inspired by student activists and how they really understood the dynamics of power, uh, the tension between formal and informal power, which is something that has been incredibly useful to me in my marketing career over the years. So you played tennis there, competitive yeah. tennis, and you were student body president. Then you started as a, in politics as a le legislative aide, and then went back to Harvard for yeah. your MBA. So tell me that story. Why did you choose politics? Yeah. Why did um, you stay in it? Why did you choose business school and Harvard? At one point, I had a crazy goal that I wanted to be governor of California or some type of elected official. And I have a very strong public policy uh, Roots, and so I um, received a public policy was fellowship. Was that from your parents, or what was? The... Yeah, my mom was a big kind of crusader for social justice, mm -hmm. and my, uh, you know, I was always kind of student body president of just about every uh, class, and so yeah, I, I really liked. What was to... your slogan at Santa Cruz that got it... you elected? <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the slogan was. I had many of them, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, when I got to the California legislature, I uh, well, I worked as a public policy fellow. Uh, in the governor's office, uh, working on post-secondary education, K through 12. Uh, and then I was hired by a up and coming Latino Senator who's still, still a very good friend, uh, named Art Torres. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be the first Hispanic governor of California. And it was the most amazing learning experience. I learned all about what we called the new California, which is really kind of an early proxy for what the U S is becoming, uh, multicultural, highly diverse, um, you know, very, very dynamic, uh, close to the Pacific Rim. And so I spent five, six years really getting close to um, what I consider to be the, the new consumer base, um, learning with humility. And it was my and it was Art Torres who basically said, son, um, don't stick around government forever. Uh, go to business school. You can always come back. And it turned out to be the best advice. I also learned when I got to, um, I'm also, I'm often asked about my marketing skills and it's very convenient to say with all due respect, P&G, but the real truth of a lot of my marketing skills came from working in government because you have very few resources. You have very short time windows. Uh, you're basically marketing legislation. You're building coalitions. You're learning a lot about word of mouth. You're constantly humiliated by the press corps that constantly hangs up the phone on you. So you have to really learn yeah, almost like the art of direct marketing. And so uh, that is where I got a lot of my scrappy uh, early marketing skills that have been invaluable as I've gotten into the startup space. So you went to Harvard and then you went to P&G, right? They're your first. So yeah. you're, a, you're kind of an activist. Yeah. You're a bit of a revolutionary and you go to one of the most buttoned up stayed corporations in America at that time. Yeah. So what was that? What, tell, walk us through that decision. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Jim. I, um, 
I, I developed, you know, I was in business school the uh, 93 to 95 mm-hmm. uh, in the same class as folks like Sheryl Sandberg. She was in my section mm-hmm. and many other founders. And I was captivated by this new medium that was emerging. Mosaic Browser had just come out. I, I started to write a weekly column for the newspaper called The Surf Report. And everybody thought I was going to go into the tech world. I tried to be very honest about my skills, and I knew in my heart of hearts that I needed traditional training. I knew I wanted to start a company someday, and I didn't have the confidence that I could do that until I literally kind of wore a good straitjacket. And everybody was like, boy, P&G is a great place to go. And and that was kind of what brought me to Cincinnati, and it was a really good choice. Um, there were times when it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, would, I had one brand manager that told me that analysis will liberate you. <laughs> <laughs> But it was good. I mean, I think, you know, you learn a lot about analysis and numbers and putting together writing, a business yeah. plan. I mean, all the yeah. P&G training. And it turned out to be invaluable. But the other thing that was interesting and even a bit opportunistic, I had read a couple articles about an ad age. I was very captivated by that seminal 1994 speech by Ed Arts about the future of advertising. I still have parts of it memorized. And Ed Arts was the CEO of P&G at the time. The CEO of P&G, and he was basically saying, we're in for a whale of a change amidst all these things that are going on. And there's a part of me that was like, okay, well, I can go there to get traditional skills, but wouldn't it be interesting to be there as things start to pivot? And I'm really into being an early ground floor um, part of a movement. And what was interesting is that, and I came to really love this about P&G, still love it. There was so much humility in the system, even though there were a lot of fact books where, you know, marketing lessons were codified. I think everybody realized that the truth around digital probably had to be delegated to the younger employees that were kind of living and breathing. So when I raised my hand and said I wanted to be part of the first digital marketing team, nobody said nobody. They basically created the job for me. So I was technically the first promoted brand manager of interactive marketing. So this was what year? This must have been about 97 or 98. So I did three or four years of the traditional, traditional stuff. Yeah. And um, so and- PNG says to you in 97 or 98 to be on the first digital marketing team. Was it your idea or did, was it? Well, there was. There how was, did it happen? It's, it's, it's interesting. And um, I think every company had a different model. I was actually initially hired into media because that's where most of the activity in what we call digital was taking place. So you may remember Daryl Sim was sure. there. He basically hired me and he said, okay, we've got a place in media. He put me there and they were doing some very interesting deals that were surprisingly ahead of their time, like a mashup with Time Warner, Parent Time, or with Condé Nast. They did fizz.com, these multi-brand initiatives. Viacom, there's a big deal with Viacom. Yeah, with well, yeah. and they were too ahead of their time. They yeah. ended up fizzling out um, because everybody was looking for immediate payout. Um, when in fact they were actually spot on. So we joined the team and a few other more seasoned brand managers like Vivian Bechtold came on board. And then uh, Dennis came around, uh, your predecessor, and Dennis Beaujager, who headed up marketing. And and he brought fantastic humility to, hey, listen, let's not only um, give Pete and others a bigger seat to the table, but we did this kind of subversive influence by Santa Cruz um, program called FAST, which stood for Future of Advertising Summer Intern Program. And we convinced Dennis and then CEO John Pepper to give the summer interns a real seat at the table in driving 
strategy. And we created these subcommittees like Marketing to Women Online, making intranets work. And it had a very big impact. And the one thing I learned early on in big companies is that top managers often will say no to the middle managers. They never want to say no to the young people or the interns. Great insight. And it was, and we yep. kind of leveraged that. So we got our first $25 million budget at P&G basically on the backs of the interns. And then um, I think within about a year, we were uh, Interactive Marketer of the Year. And, um, and probably, I think, the most proudest accomplishment, and I tried to replicate some of this at Nestle later on, was we brought the industry together around, um, we actually called this conference FAST, Future of Advertising Stakeholder Summit. And we tried to get in front of some of these very, these inevitable issues of consumer distrust, ad intrusion, and we got all the big companies to come together. And that was would, in the mid to late 90s. Amazing. That was 1999. Yeah. And I would love to say it stopped spam or you know pop-up ads. It didn't, but I do think it started a very important conversation that's still going on today about trust in advertising. Yeah. So tell me about digital marketing in 97, 98. <laughs> I mean, this is history, right? But it's interesting history. What was the work? Where did you start at a company like P&G to try to move them into you know, a space that was unfamiliar to all of us? You know, it's interesting, Jim. You'd be surprised. I was, I was dusting off some of the old documents the other day and trying to ask myself, is this substantially different than what I came up with at Nestle, um, you know, 10 years later? And it was surprisingly spot on. I mean, I think the key thing is that it all has to ground to consumer fundamentals, you know, uh, the, the, the basics, you know, listening to the consumer, for example, has always been something that I felt P&G did really well with the focus group. But we know that the online um, listening is infinitely revealing a brand value, whether you're listening to search query data, whether you're listening to um, online conversation, whether you're listening to clickstream data in terms of where consumers go. So a lot of what we were angling for back then was spot on. It's just that the channels have, have changed over time. The way we thought about, um, you know, advertising has to tie to business results, um, you know, so the more similarities than I than I realize, and even some of the same dilemmas about how you organize. Should digital or interactive be standalone or should it be integrated in everything? And of course, the answer is yes and yes. Um, you know, for me, what what happened, I, you know, as I was exploring all of this, I kind of had a big idea around the power of online conversation as really bringing value to brands in very creative ways. And I, and I learned this through a crisis at PNG related to Olean, you know, there's yeah, all the sorts of yeah, yeah, negative yeah. buzz online. And I realized, oh my gosh, like yeah. online conversation. It was a PNG product at the time, a new product that was replacing fat with a synthetic fat. Yeah. And it had some, you know, the, the warning labels had things that were inherently very, very viral by their nature. And you suddenly realize that the internet can bring a brand down as fast as it can bring it up. And so therefore, brand managers really need to have a much more holistic um, perspective on how to do this. And historically, PR would always be a different department, you know, and the, the brand managers were focused on buying media. So I ended up creating this company called Planet Feedback. And... Um, so slow down there for a yeah. minute. You were at P&G. Yes. And then you, uh, you started digital marketing and you start to bring the company into the future. Yes. And then you left to start your own company. So tell, yeah. us, tell us about that insight, why you did it, why you're compelled to do it, and tell us a bit about the company you founded. Yeah, listen, I mean, I, I was side hustling an idea um, while I was at P&G that was based on this principle that we can monetize consumer feedback. 
and that um, if we organize it in the right way, we can bring a lot of value to CMOs like yourself. And so, um, and I didn't leave PNG until I had done a bit of concept testing, and the, and, and the scores were off the charts. And the and the notion was that let's create a site called PlanetFeedback.com that empowers consumers to give feedback, positive, negative, ask questions, complain, and then we would um, empower them along the way. We would measure virality. Um, we would basically sell the data back to companies. Some companies back then said we were holding them hostage. Um, I think we were relatively tame compared to what the internet's become today. Um, but we created a model where we had millions of consumers give feedback and we created value in three different ways, value from data, value from relationships and value from services. For a while, we were the feedback engine for companies like Mars, um, some of P&G's biggest brands, Nokia, believe it or not. Mm. And we, um, yeah, and that was kind of a wild experience. And in a weird way, I had no business doing a startup because I was still learning at P&G, but there was a certain fresh innocence that early founders brought to that era. We saw possibilities that maybe others didn't. So who were your co-founders? So um, actually, one, one of the early co-founders was a gentleman named David Dittenfoss, who's now the CMO of uh, Fidelity, but he decided to stay at, at P&G. Mike Nazaro um, joined me. He was actually one of my first bosses at P&G, so I considered that a huge accomplishment, recruiting my boss <laughs> to join, although I got to be CEO this time. Then we slit, switch roles a, few, a little down the line. Um, but yeah, we, you know, and we learned a lot about pivoting the model. We may have been too ahead of the curve. Um, I do regret that we didn't stick to that original model. It might have uh, been exponentially more valuable um, than what it was when we sold it, but we did end up merging with a, um, a fantastic advanced text mining company founded by a gentleman named Mahendra Vora. Um, it, the company was called IntelliSeq, and believe it or not, it's almost unbelievable to say this, they were based in Sharonville. And they kind of almost had like an early Which is a Google, suburb of Cincinnati. Yeah. A suburb of Cincinnati. They had an early, you know, search capability. And so we mashed up our teams, ultimately got into the internet listening business where rather than just collecting data from a single site, we looked across the millions and millions of other conversations taking place back then. It was Google Groups, Usenet News Groups, Yahoo Groups. And then we would bottle that up for companies. And that was really, really interesting. And then eventually Nielsen bought us. Yeah. So Nielsen bought you. You stayed with Nielsen for several years. Yeah, I created a consulting division there. Um, we ended up doing a mashup with uh, McKinsey. And then I became the CMO of NM Insight, which was this mashup between um, Nielsen and McKinsey. And um, but what was, uh, and I was doing, a, I, I must have worked with a couple hundred major brands on all sorts of interesting questions related to um, word of mouth and what I called defensive branding. I had also around that time created the Word of Mouth Marketing Association um, and because I wasn't happy that, I wasn't convinced the major players, A&A, 4As, the major trade associations. The yeah. major trade associations yeah. were doing enough around trust and word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And I felt that we needed to lean in because the whole the whole promise of social media, of peer recommendations, word of mouth, um, would go down a slippery path if we didn't self-regulate. Mm -hmm. And we had too many shills running around and nobody really. And so I think we had a huge impact. We actually worked directly with um, the FTC on 
kind of uh, self-regulation, and I think we had a very, very positive impact. Um, but I'm a bit of a trust freak, um, and then I ended up parlaying that into becoming the national chairman of the Better Business Bureau. Um, but around the time that I was at Nielsen, I was um, brought into some consulting with Nestle. They had, had some very mm-hmm. difficult issues related to social media. One of them um, that ultimately created the new job that I jumped into, Greenpeace, had really taken them to town on a supply chain issue around palm oil mm-hmm. and and KitKat. And Nestle made the crisis 10 times worse by not really managing conversation very well. They were a bit condescending with consumers. And they kind of became this t- t- poster child of what not to do. The, the blessing for me is that it was one of those rare moments where the company kind of threw up its hand and said, we need an outsider to come in and we need to move it from your typical manager of social media to vice president of digital and social media. So it was a really fantastic opportunity to um, travel to Switzerland, head up digital in a company that's actually twice yeah. twice the 90, size of P&G on sales. 92 billion in sales. Yeah. So you, uh, let's, let's reverse a little yeah, bit. Sure. You, you, you went from P&G to a startup, you stole the, sold the startup to another company, you stay with that company, and then you went to a bigger company, back to a traditional company, Nestle. What did you learn about starting that company, Planet Feedback, yeah. selling it, being integrated into a large organization? What can you learn for others who are considering a sale of a small company to a larger one? You have Well, first off, you have to be incredibly agile and prepared to pivot, even if it runs against your you know, kind of the, that scent, that pride of ownership of like that original model was your baby, right? Mm-hmm. Because startups are really hard. Most of them completely fail, um, often because the founder is almost like too strident about the original idea. So having that flexibility and agility to kind of pivot and that opportunism, because sometimes you don't know what customers are going to buy. You just don't know. You can do all the planning that you want, but it's not until they really write the check. And then you have to, to some extent, really kind of capitalize on that. And that is a very unique experience within startups. In large companies, you don't, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have as much, you know, flexibility to kind of pivot the brand strategy on Tide uh, in the same way that you do with the survive uh, with the startup. And there's also a very important principle around more for less. Um, I think we dupe ourselves into believing that more money is better. I think, you know, and again, I have to be careful what I say here because I'm not suggesting that startups shouldn't raise money, but there's always a risk of raising too much money um, and missing that scrappiness that you really need. Like I've noticed today that I'm just, I continue to be very impressed at how intuitive the Instagrammers are about how to get results, you know, and they're not starting with big budgets um, they're often going directly to Amazon to get the learning. They're very good at reading data signals. They're adaptive marketers. And those are the things that were incredibly helpful to me and which really gave me a competitive edge. Um, I do think going on the outside is really helpful if you're going to go back on the inside. Um, and I was super excited about I mean, I was a bit exhausted having done a startup. It's mm-hmm. exhausting. And it's not that I thought the big company was going to be easy, but I really love the – I like being a bit of a – um, activists in a large company. Mm-hmm. It goes back to that Santa Cruz inspiration. And I was pretty amazed at how much runway they gave me at, 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 uh, at, at, at Nestle. There wasn't a lot of pushback. If I have any regret, it was that I didn't even write stronger memos because they were pretty much, tell us what to do and we'll do it. And I think the outsider equity really helped me a lot. 
We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So you went to Nestle as global head of digital and social media. So you were jumping from one company to another, jumping to a different job. Was it a new job that they created? Yeah, they created it. Okay. In fact, and it was a mashup between the marketing side and Corpcom. So I technically had two bosses. So, yeah. And you were coming in from the outside. Yeah. Uh, you moved your family of three kids to Switzerland. Yes. So Eric, you went my wife, Erica, quit her job at P&G. Yeah, so that's a lot years. of change. It was a big and deal. And that's a lot of risk. So tell us how you made that decision, what it was like for yourself, your family, uh, how you started up, how you made it successful. I mean, you ended up being there seven years, right? Yeah, seven and a half years. Yeah. I mean, I owe a lot to my, my wife and partner, Erica, who, um, you, know, you know, when I left P&G and was kind of terrified at the thought of doing a startup, you know, she provided a ton of encouragement. And even when I went to Nestle- What was she doing at P&G at the time? Oh, she was, um, in many respects, doing bigger things than I was. She did beinggirl.com. Oh. She co-founded Tremor. She was leading digital beauty scale. So she was doing some pretty awesome things. So I was- So Tremor was P&G's word of mouth startup. Word of mouth yeah. startup. So yeah. a lot of the progressive initiatives. So I was really fortunate, but I think she saw the opportunity. I mean, and, and you know, we were also debating, does she work at Nestle while she's out there or stay at P&G? But the nature of living in Switzerland kind of required that, you know, one person works, the other person is the CEO of the family. So, um, and so, and that's a longer story mm -hmm. about <laughs> cultural dynamics there. But- um, So you moved to Veve. Yeah, right? we moved to Veve. And, um, but what I was going to say is that one, one thing that Erica said is that, listen, the worst thing that can happen is that, a big global corporation pays for a European vacation. And she was absolutely right. There's no, I mean, what downside is there, right? You know, I would already, I'd sold my company to Nielsen. I was waiting for the stock to vest. I never saw myself as a lifelong market researcher. I'm sure I don't sound like a traditional market researcher. So I was probably going to do a startup anyway. Yeah. So, but, um, but it worked out great. And I had a great, um, you know, the CMO, Tom Bidet and his boss, uh, Patrice Beulah, mm -hmm. uh, they were incredibly supportive and kind of brought a healthy humility to like, hey, we don't know this. Tell us what we need to do. And uh, and I really loved uh, the public policy side of Nestle. There were some really tricky issues that we had to navigate around trust and supply chain and child labor and I mean, you name it, sustainability. And so those are the things where I really felt like I was having a very, very positive impact. And so uh, that kept me there a lot longer than I expected. So you come in as an American into the Swiss company in a new job, a big job, a senior job in a new area, right? Social media, global, global you know, uh, digital marketing. Where did you start? I mean, how did you build the job? How did you? What, I, mean, what? I mean, rewind to what we said before. I mean, I'm a big fanatical believer um, in you know, the old fashioned basics of marketing. And so, 
you know, I talked about areas like listening, engaging, you know, inspiring. I use those same terms at PNG, but again, you know, the first thing I did is put a listening infrastructure in place using marketing automation tools, did a global supplier. In that case, it was Salesforce, but it allowed everybody to analyze the conversation, you know, on the same scorecard. And so we could literally look at Philippines relative to India, relative to the U.S., and and do it at scale. So immediately I was a hero because things that normally would cost everybody a fortune on an a la carte basis, um, I was able to deliver at a much lower cost and was able to bring some centralized synergies to how we develop those programs. So we did the same thing for um, uh, service cloud. So customer service was a little bit disjointed and that reported up through me. So we, uh, we kind of implemented that. Then we got engagement strategies. Then the other thing is th the platforms were emerging. If you really think about the amount of attention that Google and Facebook alone owned, it was just begging for a strategic partnership. And that's another area where anybody who's working in the center, you want to bring those scale advantages of how you negotiate those deals. And so we were able to, you know, set up meetings with Sheryl Sandberg and or you know Kirk Perry at PNG at uh, <laughs> formerly PNG yeah, now yeah. Google and really set up meaningful strategic alliances that include media discounts, well-organized market research, because we didn't know for sure what works and what doesn't, a certain amount of client staffing, and then a certain amount of like thought leadership because the platforms bring incredible you know, views into the future of marketing. And so those were highly appealing to the markets, with the exception of China, where they have different players it was pretty much a one size fits all everybody. And so very quickly within a couple of years, we were able to get some programs in place that up until then had just been fragmented and scored some early wins. And that helped me build a lot of credibility. Um, but the most important thing aside from what I've described, um, and it goes back to that fast internship program, you know, if I were ever write a book about my experience at PNG, I'd write about a leadership program that I developed called DAT which stood for Digital Acceleration Team, where we created an environment in the center where we invited markets to apply to a highly entrepreneurial, think like a startup program that lasted for eight months at a time. The markets paid the cost. I had to demonstrate the value. And we did it as initial test. The first year we had, you know, I think three applications for every person we um uh, that we accepted, and we had 12 initially, then we built it up to about 18. But the program was enormously successful because what we did is that we, 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 we intensely trained these aspiring, you know, high potential leaders before they went back to their markets. And I did 10 of those. And so, um, and so, and I've still got like kind of a DAT alumni association. United What's State, the experiment close. that you're most proud of from that time? Oh, we probably did about a hundred different business projects for, all the major businesses, I'm probably proudest of the reverse mentoring. Never underestimate the power of putting someone who is intuitively in front of the new marketing space, represented by Instagram, mm -hmm. you know, WeChat, you name it, and let, letting them teach up. And I will always be very indebted to the senior executives at Nestle, as I was with John Pepper and others at P&G, for having the humility to let them in and to, to, and to train them. And I think the organizations that can create that collision between formal and informal power are the ones that are going to win. 
everything in my view is about is about managing tensions. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, and that was the essence of the program. Like I called them digital dualisms, these seemingly opposites that you had to manage, integration versus stimulation, intuition uh, versus ROI, scale versus agility, collaboration versus chaos. But the most important one was the formal versus informal power. Again, going back to Santa Cruz again. Mm-hmm. Wow. So back to Nestle a bit. You know, what, 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 what were your biggest challenges coming in there to do what you did? I mean, you talked about bringing the platforms together and, and scaling things and, and, and listening but what were the, and this is a different culture from P&G and from yeah. this, what were your challenges and where did you stumble? The number one challenge was the culture of cynicism. I mean, everybody, I was shocked at how many people said it's impossible to get anything done, especially on the inside, which I think is a really, if you're kind of doing a brand equity monitor, that's actually not good. You want, you know, really high employee advocacy, but this cynicism that the large Swiss organization can move. And of course I was maybe brainwashed into believing that's never the case. I think anybody can have a massive impact, but it was a huge barrier. You know, it almost like you almost didn't want to talk to people. Like, don't, don't give me advice. Don't onboard me. You're just going to slow me down. And so, yeah, but there was a lot of that. And, you know, some of it came from, but, but this is where like, I think outsider perspective is so important. And I think what you're seeing companies do to get more externally focused. We see this with P&G and PG Ventures or going to CES um, or just visiting more startups, which I think cultivates what I call p- constructive paranoia, um, is super, super important. But I was, I was amazed at how much internal naysaying there was. And you just, you can't ignore it, but you can't be deterred by it. So of that seven years, you know, tell us about stumbles, mishaps, how you recovered yeah, I mean, you know, listen, there's all sorts of, um, I mean, leaders always have to make certain assumptions about um, big opportunities. And, you know, there's certain ad platforms that we thought were going to be a much bigger deal. Like a lot of companies, we're counting likes and engagement. And while I still believe in the power of engagement, I do think at times we kind of lost our way, um, maybe uh, going too far. So you really have to figure out, and, and on the flip side, sometimes you go, too much on the extreme of click to buy. I used to have all these all sorts of, mm-hmm. you know, fun debates with our head of e-commerce because he was obsessed with like, you know, <laughs> everything's about just getting people to click the ad. I'm like, hey, if you do that too much, everybody's gonna have to deal with the collateral damage of too much uh, negativity that's out there. Um, you know, th- my one regret looking back. I mean, it's funny. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, you got amazing stuff done in your period. I wish I had taken some of my own advice about don't be afraid to write more memos. Let challenge the executives to say no. Who wants to say, who wants to look back and say, I said no to the to the to the to the internet memo? You know, and I did, it's funny, I did start to get conservative in my last couple years. And I wish I had maybe moved the needle a little bit more. But this is this is also the danger of being in a large organization for too long. You start to get this warped notion of what success is. And this is kind of why I thought, boy, maybe the next big leap for me is to really step out on the outside again. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. 
To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So you jumped from Nestle after seven and a half years, full circle back to Cincinnati, and you came back here to run Centrifuge. So tell us about that company or that organization, and tell us why you did that. Yeah, well, listen, when I left PNG, I always believed that Cincinnati was a bit of a diamond in the rough on the startup side. You had all these great marketers. Mm -hmm. You had pockets of urban renewal that were taking place. In fact, I located my company Planet Feedback in what I called the Digital Rhine on Main Street. I, I always have fallen. I've been in love with the Italian colonnade buildings. And um, and so I'd always been a big believer. And then I left for Nestle and I started to see in my Facebook feed all these stories about new restaurants, new entrepreneurs. P&G finally, you know, kind of taking startups seriously. Um, and then I heard about this company called Centrifuge that had been created and I thought, oh my gosh, this is really, um, and Centrifuge was created by all the big companies that basically declared an ambition that, that to make Cincinnati the number one startup hub in the Midwest and a top innovation center in the country. And of course, I love those big, those big goals. P&G played a big role in getting it going, but Kroger, Fifth Third, all the big companies put real skin in the game. And I remember visiting Cincinnati after you know, after South by Southwest, just to visit friends. And they're like, what's it going to take for you to come so back? So this was what, two years ago? This is about, yeah, maybe a year and a yeah. half ago. You know, and I'm like, hey, I'd love Mark Pritchard's job, but I would love Wendy Lee's job. She's the CEO of Centrifuge. That would be really awesome. I mean, that's kind of in the the middle of between a um, the startups and the big co's. And that's a, that's a space that I've always played, um, you know, played well in. And then sure enough, it kind of opened up and it was really tough. I mean, I had a million reasons not to go anywhere from, from, from Nestle. Even now I struggle looking at, you know, Instagram photos of the beautiful Lake Geneva, but, um, but it was almost an opportunity I could not say no to. I mean, who wouldn't want to come back and be part of this? I love empowering entrepreneurs. I love helping businesses see value that they can't see. I love being an activist in a large organization and I've gotten tons of speech requests to come in and, you know, even, you know, John Barrett from Western and Southern is like, shake up the house. And I like doing that. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting, pivotal moment where you know, of the $120 billion in venture capital that was raised in 2018, a lot of it is about disrupting these big companies. And so either you join the party or you run for the hills. And I'm like, let's figure out how they can join the party. So it's been really, really interesting. I also was attracted to them. I wouldn't say that I'm a finance guy. I have a lot to learn, but I do like entrepreneurial finance. I like the strategy and Centrifuge has raised upwards of 115 million across several funds. We just, we just closed a new fund. We just closed a fund of 56.1 million and and the way it's an indirect fund, so our, our our brilliant fund manager Sarah Anderson has invested in the top VCs across the country. So, and then the the strategy there is that we give the big companies access to the people, the technology, the innovation, the fresh air mm -hmm. <laughs> that these VCs bring to the table, and then over time, ideally, kind of heightening visibility into deal flow in Cincinnati, and so. That is really exciting, and, and the fund is performing really well, even before you count the local impact. And so I'm eager to learn more about that, and 
make sure that it kind of works in as smart a way as it can locally. But that's something that's very unique about that model. And even though I was working closely with the venture group at P&G and running a Silicon Valley, at Nestle and running a Silicon Valley innovation outpost, I didn't quite have that firsthand experience or accountability with um, a fund. Mm -hmm. So tell me about, you know, what, what your priorities are at Citrifuse now. Yeah. You know, I know you have a fund. So what, what are your... What are the most important things you're going to do? And how do you see the purpose of the organization yeah. in this community and beyond? You know, it's funny. It reminds me, at, at Nestle, it always, my boss, Tom Bidet, always reminded me that at the end of the day, our mission is to help markets win. That's you know, everything you do in capability building. And as I think about Centrifuge, it's all about helping startups win. And that means you have to create a smart funnel to get them in, like how do I convince more Pete Blackshaws or Jim Stangles or folks like my wife, Erica, to even take that chance? And then how do I provide the services, the support, the capability building to increase their odds that they can move down that funnel? And then, one hopes, get funding um, or to map them to the different resources because we don't do everything. I mean, UC has a fantastic, you know, business school. They have, you know, their 1819 Innovation Center, um, and I can route them up there. But the key thing is to really be a smart and proud router who can understand where it's like it's like consumer journey mapping, right? Where is the consumer in the personalization journey and knowing where to um, route that person? So I'd say working closely with startups is absolutely critical. And then another part is just helping the big companies that are stakeholders think differently, open up. And if they open up and reinvent their innovation method, they're likely, they're more likely to work with the startups that are right around the corner. And a lot of that is happening, although I think we can do much, much, much more. Mm -hmm. So tell me about, you know, you've had such an interesting view of um, commerce and communication and organizations and CMOs. <laughs> so I'd love to get your perspective. You know, you've sold to CMOs, you've worked with CMOs, you've, you've been, you know, almost a CMO at Nestle. And so what should they be doing more of, less of? You know, if you were to create the op optimal kind of KPIs for CMOs of the future, what would those be? I think the most important, I mean, first off, I think CMOs have to be great orchestrators of a lot of activity. And they have to I think step up their game on defining new territory for marketing. So for example, I've always been a passionate believer that areas like consumer services or any instance where the consumer is giving an opinion needs to be the center of the new marketing. Um, for a lot of CMOs, historically, that's been kind of non-strategic cost center. That's not central right. to brand building. But I do believe that that listening pipe is the starting point of strategy. In fact, I just gave a speech at P&G Signal Conference, and it was called The Concierge Economy. And Mark Pritchard was talking a lot about we need to move more towards experience. And my point was experience starts with service. You've got to get that right. Um, in fact, I even asked people in the audience, they said, how many people in the audience know the first five questions that consumers ask you? And not a lot of hands went up. And I think every CMO should be able to answer that question. And as we migrate into these infinitely rewarding capabilities around AI, voice activation, bots, smart robots, IoT, talking refrigerators, understanding that database of curiosity in a very analytical database way is the way to win. And I'm not sure CMOs are doing enough of that. 
I think CMOs also have to toggle more aggressively into the sales side. You know, if I were, you know, the new CMO of Nestle or P&G or whatever, I would be really thinking about how that journey maps together. And it's very hard in the world of Amazon. Is Amazon sales or is it marketing? Yes and yes, right? I mean, you can't, you know, I mean, you could say marketing begins with Amazon because it's a listening tool. It's an early testing tool. It's how you do growth hacking. It's it's the proxy for brand health vis-a-vis the ratings and reviews. It's a media and, tool. Yeah, exactly. And so things are really blurry. They're like, you got all sorts of crazy collisions taking place. So I think the CMO of the future needs to really step up in a very big way. I'm not convinced he or she needs to be a technologist. I do believe we've overhyped technology a bit. I think the insights are more important than ever. And I think, I wouldn't say technology is becoming commoditized, but it's becoming much easier. As I think about all the experimentation I did with Nestle and our Silicon Valley outpost, we did dozens and dozens of pilots. The technology was cool, sexy, shiny, but it always came down to a great insight. Like what makes an online recipe work? How do you really make Alexa or Google Home kind of come to life in the context of recipes? And it's an insight. It's not... It's not the it's not the technology. So I think you know the brand builder, the, the CMO also has to be a diehard believer that the fundamentals still play a very very important role, and that's hard today when there's so many things happening around us. Who do you, who do you admire these days? Companies or CMOs? Do you think are kind of getting it right? Well, I am blown. I have a little bit of a bias because he's on my board, but I think Raja from Mastercard is just so. Um, has such an enlightened view on the use of data. He's been, he's been a guest on our podcast. Trust, yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Experiential marketing, the fact that MasterCard is opening up restaurants. I mean, what's up with that? Well, wait a second. That's what they've always been about, priceless experiences. And so, but importantly, I, you know, understanding that trust is a critical building block of making that work is really, really critically important. And so, you know, I think, you know, that's that's a super good model. I, I you know, you know, I, I like what I, I really like what I'm hearing from Mark Pritchard at PNG. Um, there's a lot that I really admired from Keith Weed at, at um, Unilever. I mean, I do have a bit of a, you know, I don't know if it's kind of a, a late career bias, but but I think but no, I, I think it's more I'm just reading the consumer. Right. I think the the, the, the purpose-driven marketing is the way to go today. And I think the CMOs that get that in a very authentic, genuine way are going to lead their organizations. And we know the market is, you know, even the bit with, through the business roundtable decision, I think a lot of that is finally getting the credit and the recognition that um, it deserves. So I think any CMO that's really um, asking hard questions about what's it going to take to really kind of earn trust over time, uh, the more purpose-oriented marketing is is very important to me. So what's your advice to CMOs who are on this purpose journey? I mean, it is now much more mainstream than it used to be. You know, how do you differentiate on it? I mean, how's it come to life in your life? You're you're touching so many organizations, large ones, small ones. Don't try to yeah, don't try to turn it on overnight. I mean, you have to build credibility over time. You've been talking about it for a long time. So when I read your book, it was credible. It's like, you know, it's okay, he didn't just write this yesterday. He's been talking about it for a while. You know, I kind of buy into Mark Pritchard in the same way. He's been, you know, uh, getting into a lot of these issues. So I just don't think that you can. It has become fashionable. There's a sense of urgency because millennials demand it, right? 
but it has to be credible. And I think the um, and find the areas where you can build that credibility. I loved, you know, I, I got to know Nestle's uh, current CEO, Mark, you know, Schneider, and you know, Nestle's a tough place. You just can't say that you can't wear the white hat on a bunch of issues at once. But you know, he has picked some key areas like um, recycling and sustainability. Um, you know, to really, you know, show leadership um, in a way that uh, will kind of open up minds for future issues. And so it doesn't have to happen overnight. Um, and it's also really important to have employee advocacy behind it. I think employees are incredible BS detectors, you know, and if they do not buy into that agenda, you're not going to get anywhere. This has been great, Pete. And I want to have a bit of a lightning <laughs> round with you at the end to uh, close this up on a okay. really punchy way because we could go on for hours. Yeah. So what do you read or listen to every day? I listen to NPR religiously. I love uh, Planet Money. Um, I used to listen to every podcast when I would take my kids on these incredible uh, road trips to skiing. Um, I love uh, Kara Swisher's Recode. Um, pretty much gotten through all of those. How I built this, I just think Guy Raz is an incredible storyteller. And I think our kids have like listened to them, like each of them three times. And it's a great one if you're looking for fantastic commentary, even with little kids, because it's just great stories of how people built it and how they navigated, um, you know, tough, tough, tough things along the road. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, those are a few things. Mm -hmm. Best book, if you read books? I'm reading a fantastic book called Inconspicuous Consumption. It just came out, just got a review in the New York Times. And it really gets into what really is having an impact on um, sustainability and, you know, little things that you don't really think. E-commerce is like really a much more complicated issue than any of us realize. You know, home delivery is is complicating things um, in big ways, even though they're satisfying this need for, um, you know, convenience. The proliferation of cashmere sweaters has actually kind of created a bit of a environmental cast catastrophe and it's very closely linked to this this movement in fast fashion but the author what i love about the book is it's not a simple this is good this is bad there's inherent ambiguity but if we really want to have an impact in this area we got to get into some of these very very important nuances so that one's been fantastic favorite thing to do with your kids um well definitely go skiing and along the way to make movies I probably made about 500 yeah, videos a bunch with of my kids. And it's just a great way of archiving and memorializing the experience. Mm -hmm. Series you're watching now? Are you a series person? Yeah, I just finished Chernobyl, which I thought mm -hmm. was absolutely brilliant. Incredible. It was one of the best pieces of TV. Um, by the way, we are really in a content renaissance. We always talk about TV is over, but it's, I feel like it's just getting warmed up. It's just the, the way we consume it is 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 different but yeah the the amount of fantastic content online is incredible and 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 the other thing that's great it's not like it's cannibalizing all of our time we've created so many more consumption moments you know as our mobile devices follow us you know on the plane and everywhere we go so yeah favorite hobby i, I go back to like i like creating things i'm a big maker i love uh, maybe my next before I'm before I'm done <laughs> with this world, you know, I'll go into movie production. I just I love telling stories and memorializing them and doing them you know, as inexpensively as possible. I love the challenge of kind of more for less. And so, um, yeah, that's that's really you're a Southern California guy. Do you still go to the movies? You go to the theater, sit in the theater? 
Yeah, not as much, but um, you know, uh, we're starting to do that. I, I took my, my my daughter the other day to the what's the movie about the guy who uh, <laughs> had all the songs for the Beatles? Oh yeah, yesterday, yesterday, yeah, yeah. yesterday. Yeah, I will say the movie theaters are much more luxurious these days. Yeah, <laughs> you have a favorite movie of all time? Oh gosh, probably The Godfather. You know. It's funny, whenever I'm bored, I just love to watch Godfather clips. Yeah. You know, I uh, still work. It's it's like a drug. It's yeah. like still works. <laughs> Luca Brasi at all. <laughs> yeah, the knife in the what, hand. What a yeah. way to end, yeah, you know. Right. So <laughs> who do you talking about trust? <laughs> so, so who do you want to hear next on the CMO podcast? We're we've had Raja. Who else should we have? You gotta get Kara Swisher. I mean, she is really incredible. I mean, I think she is shaping an incredibly powerful conversation right now. She's edgy, but she's asking the hard questions. I love the fact that she'll have people on their show, but she's, you know, even just today, I mean, she really ripped the guy from MIT, but she had him on the show a while ago, and she just has a, a perspective and an edge that I, th- I find incredibly um, refreshing, and I would love to hear her story. No, I agree with that. It's a great idea. We'll follow up on it. Okay. You have my vote. Yeah, no, it's great. (laughs) So is there anything we haven't talked about that we should to understand Pete Blackshaw? No, I mean, I think, you know, I I do think as we look ahead to marketing that uh, trust is going to be more important than ever. And what what do we need to do to really ensure that we're in front of it versus being, you know, regulated or um, forced into it? And I do believe there's still a lot of planet feedback type models that have yet to be created. It's something I'm trying to cultivate here in Cincinnati. I think the big companies can play a big role by being very, very open about where there are gaps. I think this conversation that Mark Pritchard, Keith Weed, and others have created about, you know, too many fake influencers, you know, brand safety, all these issues, they're really important because entrepreneurs should be listening to that and saying, you know what, I have a solution. And I don't think Facebook or Google are going to have the solution. They're not trusted. You know, they don't have enough trust from the get-go. And so, you know, but we need to we need to get ahead of these issues. I do still believe we are at a crossroads in marketing where it can completely go to the dark side, where we just have insane levels of cynicism that just make are going to lead to advertising being much more expensive to break through, or we're going to get our act together. We're going to take all this learning from over time and sort of say, okay, add interruption. It's never worked. It never will work. Um, You know, distrust. I mean, honesty, transparency. We're just going to have to get in front of that. And then I think we're going to have a a, a true online, a new market space that works for everybody. And I think everybody should make that their number one priority. It's a beautiful, positive way to end it. (laughs) No, the opportunity, right? Absolutely. There are clear problems that haven't been solved. Yeah. And that's inspiring. Good. So, Pete, thank you. Thank you. Very generous. I really enjoyed that. Fantastic. That was my conversation with Pete Blackshaw. What I loved about this one was this guy's pure energy, pure enthusiasm, pure insights. But the story I love the most was back at University of California, Santa Cruz. He designed a T-shirt with the mascot banana slug on it. And somehow that T-shirt ended up on a character in Pulp Fiction. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, 
leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.